You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 26. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And when Shem lived after, he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ru lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the word of the Lord. All right, hopefully you have a Bible. There are some Bibles under the seats if you need a copy of God's Word there. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, and then go to the big number 11, and uh, you'll be right in the right spot there. So just a handful of pages into the Bible. Uh, about 15 years ago or so, Bree and I got to lead our first mission trip. We were newly married, and I was interning at this church, and the senior pastor came to me and said, you're leading a, you're leading a mission trip to Mexico City. And uh, I put together a team, and my daughter's on that team, so don't screw it up. And so we, uh, okay, that's a lot to put on a young guy. I'd not been, I, don't, I had been, hadn't been out of the country in a long time. And luckily, Bree's Spanish is decent. Mine's not great, never has been great. And so, but we took the challenge and we flew to Mexico City and we got teamed up with a church that was there. And uh, that church was doing some events to try to reach out in the community. And uh, this little tiny church just needed some encouragement. And so we came 
And uh, part of the uh, job was as we prepared for this event that was going to happen at the end of the week, we were going to go out into these neighborhoods and break up into teams and go just kind of spread the word, tell people about this church, about this event that's going on. And uh, we were there largely to be sort of an encouragement to those Mexican believers who uh, just needed some encouragement to reach their neighbors. And having these Americans come, we were a bit of, a, we were a bit of an attention getter. Uh, like, why are these Americans wandering through our neighborhood? We want to hear what's going on. And then that would leave op- give opportunities to, uh, for, for the, the person that we were teamed up with to talk. And so I got teamed up with this tiny little 60-year-old woman. And uh, man, she, was, uh, she did not care that I didn't know Spanish. She was going to tell me everything. And I just nodded and a lot of, see, see. And uh, we're walking around and we wander off. And I'm, I'm thinking about what the senior pastor had said because I had just sent all of these like teenagers off in various directions and I don't know where they are and I don't know who they're with but I'm just kind of trusting this and I'm off with this uh this woman and I have no idea where we are we're going and we're knocking on houses and uh and everybody's answering the door and she's having these long conversations and I'm just buenos dias and that's about all I got and um and it was just amazing I had this little clipboard because what we were doing is we were going to track sort of what the response was was these people who were interested in Christianity interested in the church interested in the event and there was even one category there where if, um, if, if you were able to share the good news of Jesus and they wanted to become a Christian, there was a place to, man, there's conversions or whatever. And so this woman, she's talking my ear off. We're going to all these, we're going down the street, we're knocking on the doors and we're opening and she's engaging in conversations and she's praying with every single one of them. And, uh, and I have the clipboard and I don't know what to check. I have no idea what's going on. And so, um, so she keeps pointing to the one and, and I, I put, okay, conversion. I guess someone just became a Christian and we went... And uh, we got back, when we rallied back up and kind of gave a report, it was like, you know, everybody's giving their reports and going, yeah, this is, these people are interested, these people aren't interested, we definitely want to follow up here and, and go back with these folks. And then we got to me, and it's like we visited 71 houses, and we had 68 conversions. I think, I think a revival just, I think we just converted Mexico. I think we're, I think we're done. I think this is a Christian, you know, anyway. Uh, it turns out, you know, the, the language barrier and what she was trying to communicate with me was not exactly what I was getting. But I was doing my best, and we were able to kind of sort it out later. But I don't know if you've ever tried to have a conversation with someone of a different language. It takes a lot of work. It is a real barrier between people when you don't speak the same language and you can't understand each other. In fact, even someone speaking the same language as you with a different accent can be very challenging, right? And so something that's unique about human beings is our ability to communicate in language. It's, it's a very intricate function of our human brains. I think it's part of the image of God in us that we're able to communicate in these complex thoughts. And I'm able to trans, transfer a complex thought in my head to your head by speaking and you receiving that. That's a pretty amazing thing. You're laughing at things that I said that I intended to be funny and the message was transferred, right? It's pretty amazing what humans can do with language. And it's a big challenge when we can't communicate, when we can't speak. We can overcome it, but it takes a lot of work. And the scripture today gives us a category, gives us an explanation for why that is in the world. Why is it that we have different languages, different nations, and the Bible gives an answer. We've been going through the book of Genesis, this beginning series, because I have wanted us to get um, a foundation under our feet, an understanding of a biblical worldview where we understand who God is and the world that he's made and why he's made it and how he's made human beings and, and what, how he designed them to work as male and female and this covenant relationship filling the earth. And, um, and, and we've also wanted to, to take a look at, at what's gone wrong 
Um, We've looked at the fall in Genesis 3 where humanity with this glorious privilege and responsibility and ability to image him in the world have now taken their privileged status and turned it against God and wanted to go their own way and wanted to be gods themselves. And it turns into violence. We see that in Genesis chapter 4 where one bite of one piece of fruit, you go one generation down and one brother's murdering another because he worships God rightly. And it's just amazing what one little sin can do through a family, through people. And we see that all of the human race is corrupted by this sin, this disposition um, against God and for ourselves and this disposition to want to actually use other people, injure other people for our own glory. And you just continue through the book of Genesis and you see it gets more and more violent until you get to Genesis chapter 6 where it says humanity, the, the intentions of his heart was always evil continually. And there was such brutal violence going on in the world and such terrible atrocities that God comes to the point, this gracious and good God who created everything decides, I need to hit the reset button. I need to reformat the computer. It's so full of viruses, I've just got to start over. And he does. And he chooses one family and brings them through the flood. And now he gives them a new covenant, not because they deserve it, but because he's so good and gracious. And he promises them to never flood the earth again. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. His intention is still in effect. He hasn't given up. And he sends these three sons out. turns out that they have the same sin problem that everyone else does. And, um, and we begin to see all of the nations come from these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the people go all over the place. In Genesis chapter 10, that's what we looked at last week, is this dynamic genealogy, which has 70 nations, 70, a number of completion, giving the, uh, giving the, 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 the intention there is that all of humanity descends from this one family, from these three sons. And then uh, we see that those people are divided by place and people and language and culture. But we don't get an explanation in Genesis chapter 10 of where the languages came from. It seems like everybody's communicating the same language Genesis chapter 10 tells us that people actually begin to spread out and become distinct cultures, distinct peoples, distinct nations with their own distinct languages. So chapter 11, this story of Babel is really going back to explain what was already uh, revealed in, in Genesis chapter 10. And so this is the, an explanation of Genesis chapter 10, that table of nations that, that represents the breadth of humanity. We get the explanation here in Genesis chapter 10. So I want, or Genesis chapter 11. I want to break this into two parts just so you can track with where we're going. There'll be probably some words on the screen that'll help you kind of follow along with some of the things that I'm wanting you to see in the text. Um, First of all, we see the defiance of man in the Tower of Babel in verses 1 through 9. We're going to spend a bulk of our time there. And then we get another genealogy. This is our fifth genealogy for those of you that are really into genealogies. Uh, Genesis is your book. And so we'll take a look at what that genealogy has to tell us about the plan and promise of God to redeem these nations. So we have in Genesis, uh, that's the promise of God through the family of Shem. You probably see that on the screen there. So the defiance of man in the Tower of Babel will be the first part. Second part, the promise of God through the family of Shem. All right, so the, pro- the defiance of man in the Tower of Babel. Let's look at these first nine verses. The structure of this passage is brilliant in its original language. This is a masterpiece, a literary masterpiece, these nine verses. Moses, who is the writer of this several hundred years later, constructs this narrative, and it is brilliant. It, is, it has rhyme, it has repetition, it has alliteration, it has parallelism. It has kind of a Dr. Seuss-like quality in the Hebrew. 
in that he's got these word plays. Let us, let us brick with bricks and let us fire them with fire. And he just has all of this beautiful imagery that we don't have time to get into. Um, and it's in the structure of a chiasm. Chiasm is an ancient Hebrew way of structuring stories, narratives, poems in order to make a point. And the way it works is that the beginning of the, the section and the end of the section match. Either they're saying the same thing or they're saying the opposite thing, but they're meant to match. And then as you work your way to the middle, the second thing in and the second to last thing in match. And what happens is, is that it's meant to point you to the center. The center point is the most significant part of the text. It's the point of the text. So you kind of climb the mountain to the peak and you come back down the mountain. And that's what we have here. And it, it, it's meant to explain to us, uh, it's meant to point to the point of this particular text, why this is in the scripture. So let's just look at this. We're just going to go verse by verse. Well, you see verse 1 and verse 9, we have from all have the same language to the end of this story, all have different languages. We see in verse 2, all are gathered together. In verse 8, they're all dispersed everywhere. We have verses 3 and 4, a defiant speech against God and the resulting actions. And then just in verses 6 and 7, God's speech against man and the resulting actions. And then at the very center is that God came down to see. That's really the point of the text. God knows what's going on. He's sovereign over these things and he is interacting with people And uh, so let's walk through the text. Let's just go verse by verse through this thing. Verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Again, this goes back to chapter 10 to explain the breaking up of these different language and people groups. Genesis chapter 11 is explaining they didn't start that way. They were able to communicate. They were all one family. This is where the breakup happens. Verse 2. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So the East has an interesting history, uh, has an interesting significance, I should say, in the book of Genesis. Because you see, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden and sent to the East. There's a cherub to guard the garden on the East side. When Cain is cursed, he is sent to the East to wander. So this idea of the East is a picture of rebellion against God, being far from God. So Moses has given us a little clue here that they're going East literally, But there's something figurative that's going on when you see that is that they're far from God. So this project that he's going to tell about is an anti-God project. It's to the east. And so they go to the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Uh, this This east language indicates that this is not going to be good or godly or pleasing to him. Interestingly, when you get to the Gospels, where do the Magi come from? They come from the east. So there will be a bringing back of those who have gone far from God and there will be some who will be brought in from the east back to the people of God through Jesus Christ. Um, In verses 3 and 4, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, literally let us brick bricks, and let us burn them thoroughly, let us fire them with fire. So just a poetic way of saying uh, let's, let's make good quality materials. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over all the face of the whole earth. Now, if you remember, the call of God was for them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with people, fill the earth with my image. And they are defiantly, organizationally going to defy God. 
This is eyes wide open. We are not going to do what the good creator God has asked us to do. Our intention, the intention of God for the human race, they are going to defy it openly, organizationally, and um, right in front of his face. Now, if you go back, there's some interesting in the genealogy in chapter 10. There's this talk of a Nimrod. Uh, This Nimrod's a mighty hunter before the Lord and seems to be the one who builds mighty cities. And so perhaps it talks about him being the kind of the one who starts this Babylon project. Maybe he's the one that's organizing this. We don't know. We just have this sort of intriguing little like parenthesis in chapter 10 that talks about this Nimrod being a mighty city builder. He at least lays the groundwork, it seems, um, for what is about to happen. And so, uh, in fact, it says in chapter 10, verse 10, the beginning of the kingdom was Babel, meaning uh, Eric, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. And then, it all, interesting also back in chapter 10, that big genealogy, chapter 20, uh, verse 25 of chapter 10, it says, To Eber were born two sons, the name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. So it seems like maybe that's a little bit of an indication how far in that Genesis 10 genealogy that this big language breakup, this big Tower of Babel happens. Now there's three reasons for the tower. You see this in verse 7, or verse 4, sorry, verse 4. Three reasons. First, let us come, let us build a tower. Who's... Uh, Let us build a city and a tower and its top in the heavens. Top in the heavens, reason number one. We want to rival God. We want to dethrone God. There's this belief that if they could just get sort of high enough, they they could somehow get into the heavenly realm and they could dethrone God. We can get to God ourself. We can be a God ourself. This God is not so great and not so good. We ourselves can rival him if we work together. So first and foremost, it's to dethrone God. It's the, self, it's the worship of self, the worship of human accomplishment. Secondly, they do it because they want to make a name for themselves. They don't want to be identified by God. They want to make their own identity. They want to define themselves. They want to define their own humanity. They want to have a name for themselves, meaning renown. They want to be remembered for how great they are apart from God. So they want to dethrone God by building a tower to the heavens. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to define themselves. They don't want to be defined by God. And they want to be defined against God. And then lastly, it's because, reason number three, not to be scattered. They do not want to obey God. So they dethrone God. They define themselves. They want to defy His commandments. They want to be self-sovereign. They want to be kings of their own destinies. And so they're going to openly defy God and build a massive fortified city so that even if God were to come against them, they would be ready. They would be ready to withstand even God's attack should he be displeased with them. They could, what, a, what an arrogant thing. What a small view of God. What a big view of themselves. Verse 5. Here we get to the point of the text. Verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So this is incredibly sarcastic. The greatest achievement that man can put together, they are putting all of their unified effort and ingenuity behind, and God has to come down to see it. That's the idea. This is this sarcasm. It's an anthropomorphism where God is taking on kind of a human characteristic. Of course, he could see it just fine. He's God. He's everywhere. He can see anything. But this idea of being their great accomplishment, I'm going to have to go way down to see this microscopic little thing. The greatness of man cannot rival God even in the least. This is sarcastic. 
And so God has to come down. He has to stoop down. He has to get his eye to the ground level to see just how great humanity is. Look at how... There's this sense that God (laughs) is not particularly threatened by this, but he plays along in verses 6 and 7. I think this is sarcastic here. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. And then you have this parallel. You know, they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower. So God kind of matches that. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So again, God is mocking them here. He isn't concerned with being dethroned. He's not really afraid that this is somehow going to be a successful mutiny, that he's really going to be dethroned in any actual sense. Or that man would somehow become a god. That's not what's being described here. But I do think he is concerned that apart from his intervention, they will destroy themselves. Remember, they already humanity already has a track record of getting to the point in violence and hardness of heart to where they only think about evil continually. That, that's, that's, that's part of the human record to this point, and they're well on their way to another clash which is totally hardening themselves. And God sees where this is headed. But remember, God made a promise that he would never again flood the earth. And God has not forgotten his promise here. He has every right, like, hey, we're back kind of where we were again. And yet he's not going to bring this judgment. Like a good father, he has more than one way to discipline. And so he does not flood them. He is faithful to his promise here. But he does discipline them. He does have a consequence. He does judge them. And he disunites them in judgment and in mercy. Both the judgment and the mercy of God are in mind here. They are being defiant and he is judging them by spreading them out. But his good intention for them was that they would be spread out. So even in his judgment, he is going to spread them out and there is going to be an act of mercy. He is going to accomplish his purposes through them, whether they want to or not. The purposes of God are not thwarted here and this is both an act of judgment and mercy. Kids, can you just imagine what this would be like You woke up one day and you're about to head off to soccer practice and all of a sudden you have no idea what the coach is saying. And all of a sudden you hear all of these different words from kids on your team. Like it'd be hard to play on the team. Well, maybe you could, maybe you could play sports. Sports kind of in some ways you can make it work, especially if you've had some prior. But if you can just imagine going to your job and all of a sudden you can't speak the same language as someone, you would have to eventually find people that you have language with and start businesses with those people and you would have to like you just have to naturally separate and congregate in order to accomplish anything at all and it would be so weird to show up at school and all of a sudden there's you have no idea what your best friend is saying and you can't play like you did before and so verse 8 so the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth and they left off building the city so not only does he confuse their languages He disperses them. I don't know what this looks like. I don't know if he just kind of beamed them up and moved them around like God can do that. Maybe that text maybe is there. Maybe kind of naturally they migrated because they, you know, sort of had to. They had to kind of create space. Either way, however, probably maybe a combination of both. I don't know. But it certainly seems that it's the Lord's act here that now gets people all spread out as he intended. And guess, fascinatingly, where the line of Canaan ends up. 
It tells us back in Genesis chapter 10 that the line of Canaan is going to end up in the promised land. Although it's not the promised land quite yet, that's coming in the next chapter. But that oracle of Noah where we see the prediction of how Canaan is going to be the slave of slaves and Shem is going to be the one, the descendants of Shem are going to be the ones who drive out, who lead, who rule over the Canaanites. We see that God has now moved all of the pieces where he needs to to accomplish his plan. And he's used the rebellion of humanity to accomplish his purposes. (laughs) He's got history rigged in such a way that even the defiance of man and his judgment on it is putting things right where they need to go in order for him to work his redemptive plan. The chessboard is now set. The prophecy of Noah is now going to be played out. The city and the tower are abandoned. And a declaration from God, uh, the human project is, is dead in its tracks. One declaration from God, one act of God, and the human project is just stopped dead in its tracks. The construction project is abandoned. Their defiance against God is easily thwarted by just one, two sentences from God. And humanity is totally redirected in judgment and some in a strange way in His mercy. Psalm 2 tells us about this. I think maybe thinking about this Babel experience. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Right? So we see the story of Babel. Psalm 2 picks that up. and An amazing story read in light of the Babel story is the rest of the psalm. Ultimately, I think it points to Jesus. Verse 9, this is where the, this particular story comes to a conclusion. Therefore, so Moses, the author, is now giving us kind of the meaning here. Therefore, the name was called Babel because the Lord confused the languages, the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Okay? Babel, before this event, meant the gate of the gods. And God comes and he acts, and now Babel means confusion and nonsense. Right? What was intended to be by man to be a gate of the gods a place of human glory for everyone to remember forever, God goes, yeah, that's ridiculous and brings it to a close. They make a name for themselves, foolishness, confusion, folly, ultimately failure in this human project against God. So I want to answer a question. I want to spend a good amount of time now talking about why does Babel matter? Why are these nine verses important to the story of Scripture? Why are they in here? What's the significance of this story? Is it just interesting? Makes a good Bible story lesson for kids? This sets up a really... This, this is a key story in the, in the Bible's overall story. And I want to talk about it in three ways. First, explanation. Second, prototype. Third, setup. Okay? So why does this matter? First, an explanation. This is the how and why of Genesis 10. All of those nations and languages, Babel explains how God accomplished that. How they went from one nation one family, to many nations and many places. And this serves a bit as a decoder ring for the Exodus people. Because this book is originally written to Israelites have been brought out of Egypt and they're in the desert and they're with this weird God that they know a lot of stories about that's delivered them, but they're still getting to know him and he's given law and he's, you know, fire by day and cloud by night and manna on the ground and 
we're supposed to go to a promised land and it has to do with our great-grandfather Abraham. And so they have all this going on and God under the, or the, Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit is putting together the history of their people. So you can just imagine in the desert, now they get to this chapter and they go, oh, this makes total sense from what we're seeing because we're, we're seeing this nation over here and we're seeing this nation over here and they speak this way and they do that thing and they can look at this and they can kind of like line it up and see, oh, I get, I get what God's doing here. It's this decoder ring. It's a, it's a treasure map. It's, they're able to see now and make sense of their surroundings so that they can get where God is intending for them to go. And God's word still works that same way for us. We kind of hold it up and we kind of go, oh, okay, I get why people are that way. I get why I feel that way. I get why that happens. And so in a really legitimate like physical way, the Israelite people in the desert get to this and they go, oh, okay, this makes sense why this nation's here and why these people are here and they're actually related to us this way and this is why these guys don't get along and, you know, and, and these prophecies and all of this, this. This is a significant event for helping them understand an explanation for the world they live in. God knows the name of every nation. He has placed them where he has for his own purpose. And if you're wandering in the desert trying to trust this God, that is deeply comforting. To know that God has been at work long before you got here and he has been moving things around and he's going to care for you. His promise has survived a whole lot in 10 chapters already. And guess what? You who are the recipients of his promise can trust him. You can trust him in the desert and in the wilderness because he's guiding you. What a comfort I think these chapters would be to go, oh, this makes sense. God's not making it up. This isn't plan B. This is exactly what he has intended and is working out his plan. Dear freed slaves, do not fear. This is your God. This is your roadmap. It's going to work out. Context and confidence comes to those original readers from this story and this series of stories that we have. Secondly, so we have explanation for the original readers of why the world is the way it is with actual names and places that they would know and recognize and make sense of. Secondly, it's a prototype. It's a prototype in Scripture. Babylon, Babel, Babylon, becomes a prototype, a type in Scripture. So this unified human rebellion that all of the humans at the time were at least cooperating with or involved in in some way becomes a catch-all term throughout Scripture for nations, cities, and empires that raise themselves against God. Babylon becomes a catch-all term for rebellion against God. So this serves as sort of a prototype that this heart of Babylon, though it's spread out, is still in the hearts of human beings. It's still in the hearts of nations. People still want to organize themselves to make a name for themselves, to define reality for themselves, to be great in and of themselves. So this typology is used throughout the Bible as a symbol for organized human defiance against God. So when we see these oracles against Babylon, at times it's a real literal nation. At times it's this bigger perspective of the Babylon-type heart among people and systems. One commentator put it this way, Babylon was the prototype of all nations, cities, and empires that raised themselves in pride. The Babylon motif becomes the common representation for anti-theocratic program. So whenever human beings are um, organizing themselves to make a name for themselves, you have this Babylon-type term and terminology used throughout Scripture. This is why exile in Babylon at the end of, uh, towards the end of the Old Testament is such a big deal. 
is there now brought under the city of man. The city of God that was supposed to be so great and glorious now comes under this nation that is the epitome of anti-godness. Isaiah 14 is an interesting perspective on this. So think of this in terms of Babel. Some would say that this is also, this is, this is literally an oracle against the king of Babylon. But I think it's interesting to think it through it in terms of this lens of Babel. So just think of this, this story of Babel and listen to this. Some would say that it also maybe has a reference to Satan and his fall as well, but just put all of that kind of together. This actual nation, the history of Babel, and then also this fall of Satan and just see how like, man, all of this kind of fits together as like human rebellion Sort of has this whole package feel to it. Listen to this, Isaiah 14, 1 through 23. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. Remember, the Bab- Babel, they were wanting to build to the heavens, right? You were cut down to the ground. You, were laid, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the amount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That sounds like Satan, but it also sounds like these people at Babel. But you are brought down to Sheol and to the far reaches of the pit. Then you will see those who who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the earth lie in glory, each of them in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, but pierced by the sword, who go down the slopes, down down to the stones of the pit. Like a dead body trampled underfoot, you will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never be named. Perhaps the slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the earth with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity. Remember, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Declares the Lord, and I make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. So, So you have down the line this oracle against Isaiah, and you still see that in the heart of man is this Babylonian heart of rebellion against God. You go all the way to the end of the Bible, to Revelation 18, and there you have the destruction of Babylon described. It called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which is is meant to pull all of this imagery down through Scripture from the Tower of Babel to this time, human kingdoms. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every clean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every clean and detestable beast, For all nations have drunk from the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped up as high as heaven and God has remembered her. So the idea is that this Babylonian spirit and heart of wanting to rival God, make a name for ourselves, Uh, define our own reality, be self-sovereign is in the heart of man and it's used in this term of Babylon. And people will continually organize themselves in this way against God until you get all the way to the end of the book and you go, yep, the spirit, the actions of the Tower of Babel still exists. And so it's an explanation for the original readers. It's also a prototype through Scripture. It gives you a little bit of an indication of where human beings in, in their natural state intend to go. 
Those same three reasons are still around today. To reach to heaven, to make a name for ourselves, and to not be scattered around the earth. And ultimately, this is a setup. This scattering of all nations and peoples around the world is a setup in Scripture for the redemptive plan of God. God plans to redeem and gather all the nations. Let me just give you a quick run through Scripture. I think the references are on the screen there. But from this point forward, God is now, now that He has scattered the nation, is on a quest to get them back. So He judges and spreads them, and they'll continue to spread and multiply and fill the earth. But you go just a few more verses. In fact, we're going to see this starting to be played out in the genealogy we'll look at here in a moment. God is going to call a man named Abram to be a blessing to what? All the nations. And then we have, through the rest of the Bible, is God's pursuit of all the nations for his glory. And it's throughout the entire Bible. This is a major theme in Scripture that's set up in the Tower of Babel story. Let me just read some passages, just machine gun style, so you can get a feel for this. We're going to go one page over when we get to the fall. We're going to take a break for the summer and do a different sermon series. Come back in the fall. And we're going to look at this Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Babel's still ringing in the ears, and God is already going to set in motion a plan to get them back. Genesis 46 17, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. That's a significant number because there's 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10, which means that this family is now flowered to the point where they now have the ability. There's one for each nation, so to speak. Genesis is not doing that accidentally when it talks about this 70. So even by the end of Genesis, you see that God is going to make, God is going to make Israel, God is going to make the descendants of Abram a blessing to Egypt. And then ultimately out to the world over time. First Chronicles 16.31 Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So God intends His people to be witnesses among the nations so that they all may come under the lordship of God. Psalm 67.4 Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon it. Zephaniah 3.9 For at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech that all may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. He's going to reverse Babel. He's going to bring a reversal of Babel in Zephaniah 3.9. Then you get to Jesus, and Jesus comes, He lives, He dies, He rises again, and then His great commission in Matthew, 18, Matthew 28, 18, and 19 says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? All the nations. So Jesus' intention, the, the entire plan of God through the whole Bible, is to go get those nations that he spread out. And he's going to use his disciples to do it, to go get them. It doesn't say make as many disciples as possible, although that's great, but make disciples of all the nations. I want a representative. I want a Genesis 10. I want every one of those peoples represented. I want every people to be represented around my throne. Go get them. And then in Acts 1.8, also it says, as Jesus um, 
is about to ascend into heaven, it says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And guess where the ends of the earth are? The nations. By the way, we're about as far from Jerusalem as you could get. We're the ends of the earth. We're not Jerusalem. We're the ends of the earth. And we're gathering here because someone reached us. This plan of God to go and make disciples of all nations, you're it. You're it, and you get to be part of it. Acts chapter 2, look at this. Today is actually in the church calendar, Pentecost Sunday. And just look at what happens at Pentecost. It was read earlier. So 50 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised that the Holy Spirit would come, and then the Holy Spirit comes. In Acts chapter 2, Abby read this a little bit earlier. On the day of Pentecost arrived, and they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared on each of them, and and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. Listen to this, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. That's Babel right? Every nation under heaven, and look what happens. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? These are not people typically known for their prowess at language learning. They can catch fish sometimes, although we see in the Gospels they're not always great at that. They're not known for their language skills, and yet we are hearing in our own language, look what it says, it is, we hear each one in his own language, it lists a bunch of them, and then in, at the end of verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they asked the question, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying, what? saying to one another, what does this mean? And what it means is, is that God is beginning the reversal process of Babel. The judgment that was brought in Babel is going to be brought back together by the gospel. What used to divide humanity is going to be overcome. And Ephesians 2 tells us that he, Jesus, will create in himself one new man in place of the two, so so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we all have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's going to create one new humanity. And where all the divisions lie are going to be overcome, and he's going to bring them all together and create one new humanity. That's a big statement, one new humanity. You go to Revelation chapter 22. Does God get what he wants? Does God's plan come together? Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life and its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Remember, they wanted to make a name for themselves. God says, I will give you a name. 
and it's way better than any name you could give yourself. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And what happens is, is that what lasts forever is not the city of man built from the ground to heaven, but a city that comes from heaven down to man as a gift. We see that in Re- earlier in Revelation where this city comes. It's the city I build for you, not the city you build for me or against me. And so this Tower of Babel is a setup for the eternal kingdom of God where he's going to gather all nations around his throne. So the defiance of man and the Tower of Babel, let's look at the next few verses for just a few moments, okay? I told you we'd take the bulk of our time there, but I want us to kind of set ourselves up to come back to Abram in the fall. So as the story winds down, as we see the meaning of this story, it's significant in all of Scripture. It sets up the entire plan of God. We then get another genealogy. And here we have Toledot number five. Toledot is the Hebrew word for these are the generations of. These serve as the chapter headings in Genesis. This is the fifth of ten, which means we've, meet, we've, we've ended up in the midpoint of the book. Not in terms of size, but in terms of theme. Because now we're going to turn from God dealing with all of the earth to now God dealing with one man and his family. So there's a massive shift from chapter 11 to chapter 12, and this is the connective tissue between the two. God has spread out all the nations. Is his promise still in effect? In, uh, and this is the fifth of the ten. This is, this is now the halfway point in the book, and we're going to have a totally different um, perspective now as this one man becomes a blessing to all these nations that God has scattered. We have here a linear genealogy. This is used to show that one has claim to thrones or inheritance. Remember, go back to Genesis chapter 3, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we see that these two kinds of people are in the world, those who act like the serpent, people like Cain, people like Lamech. We see these, those who have the disposition of Satan, so to speak, these, the seed of Satan, and they're rivaling with the seed of the woman, the promised one, which is Seth and Noah. And you see it passing down through the line. So who is the inheritor of this promise of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent? And this genealogy shows you as the tree begins to fork, follow this branch, follow this family. This linear genealogy shows that this is the inheritors. This is the keepers of the promise. We notice in this genealogy that years are shortened, but there's no mention of death. The other genealogies often mention death, but here we have this hope, this hopeful look that maybe death won't have the final word. We see their lives are beginning to shorten. They still look weirdly long to us, but they're beginning to shorten. They're way less than the 900 years which showing that human beings are beginning to become a little bit more recognizable to us in terms of their lifespans. They're starting to have kids in their 20s and 30s. That makes sense to us. So paradoxically, while their lives are growing shorter, there seems to be, by there's, because of no mention of death, a promise and blessing that this promise of hope that's going to pass through this line, that maybe death won't have the final word. And we have the classic three-son ending. Notice that in the genealogies, we've had that several times now where when it reaches a point where it wants you to pause and it wants to tell you some stories, it gives you a threefold son. And we see that. So Genesis 11 parallels the genealogy in chapter 5. We have 10 generations to a tri-son finish, which we've had before. We have from Abraham to Eber. Well, actually, Abraham to Enoch, seven generations. And then we have Enoch taken up into heaven. We have from Enoch to Eber, 
which is where the word Hebrew comes from, seven generations. And then from Eber to Abram, seven generations. So every seventh generation, it pauses to tell you something significant about this promise and these people. So there's an artistic, there's a careful reconstructing of this so that we will have trust that God is writing His story on humanity. The story of humanity, the story of history is is the canvas that God is telling His redemptive story on, His promise to redeem people. So, bottom line, as we reach this midpoint in the book, we take a break and come back in the fall, primeval history ends with mankind scattered and divided, but God's promise is still alive in and through one man. This flame still flickers. It's not been put out. It has been threatened at every corner, and it will continue to be threatened at every corner, and God always finds a way that's unexpected. Take heart, friends, that that's how God continues to work today. His promise is still alive for those who trust in Him. So just a few things I want us to walk out of with or walk out of here with. Um, Just a few things for us to think about, and then we'll close. The heart of Babel is still in the world. It's still in people. It's still in us. You think about the threefold reason for why they did what they did. Are those not the three reasons that you do some of the things you do? As you look at governments around the world, is it not those three things? Does it not give you at least a framework for going, oh, I I get it. We've kind of been doing this for a while. We just have new technologies to do it with, right? So the heart of Babel is still in the world. It's still in people. It's still in us. All nations still have a Babel disposition, power, renown, control, self-identity. And then you think of the word, their desire to make a name for themselves. And I would ask you to just consider the question, in what ways are you trying to make a name for yourself apart from God? Now, you might even be trying to make a name for yourself for God. But what's fascinating is the word for name in Hebrew is Shem. It's Shem. These people want to define their own Shem, but God has already given a Shem. And the promise is going to go through him. I've given you a Shem. I've given you a name that you're to call on, that you're to be identified with. I've given you a Shem. You don't have to make a Shem for yourself. God gives the Shem. So, so whatever you're trying to do to make a name for yourself, the, the scriptures are clear. There's only one name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. There's only one that you really want written on your head, on your heart, on your tombstone, on your life. And that's the name of Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the promise. And if we follow him, we get to take his name. The name Christian is taking the name of Christ. That's the most fundamental and true thing about me. I love that I get the title father. I love the title that I, of husband and pastor. But the title of Christian is the name worth having. It's the name worth saving, or the name that saves. It is the Shem we're looking for. God has given a Shem to the world. His name's Jesus. The human project of self-reliance, self-achievement, self-glorification will never be completed and ultimately topple under the mighty hand of God. You can probably go, actually you can go and look at ruined ziggurats in Babylon. Maybe one of them was Babel, I don't know. But every empire, no matter how great, is ultimately fallen. Every human project ultimately fails. So stop putting your time and resources in the city of man. 
In some sense, we need to because we want human flourishing. But don't put your hope there. There's ruined towers out throughout history. You can walk through the Colosseum where they were trying to exterminate Christians. And it's in ruins and Christianity's fine, right? It's amazing. The human project will ultimately topple under the mighty hand of God. Unity is not always a universal good. As we seek for unity in the world, what we unite around is what matters. Unity for its own sake is not always good. We see this. They're very unified, and it will destroy them. So it's all about what we unite around. We don't want unity and diversity just for its own sake, but unity and diversity around the truth, around what really saves, around what really matters in the city of God. We see that even God's judgments are setups for the display of His redemptive work. So if you feel like you're somehow in the discipline of God or things aren't working out, just know that His loves to set things up. He, he loves to alley-oop Himself in trials and difficulties. Even in judgments and discipline are just an alley-oop for Him to dunk His grace all over you. Is that not seen in the life of Jesus? The religious people of God joined forces with the world superpower. Rome and the priesthood of Israel worked together to execute Jesus illegally on almost every front. The ultimate act of human evil in the world is human beings murdering brutally their good creator. And guess what saves humanity? The cross and resurrection of Jesus. So if there's anyone who can take terrible evil and judgment and flip it for mercy, it's God. And that's the gospel. The most wicked, horrible thing in the world. We glory in the cross, which is an execution device. How weird is that? What a weird thing to center your religion on. If he can take Babel and flip it, if he can take the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and flip it, he can take whatever you're going through and flip it for his glory. And he guarantees that he will. He's got the track record to prove it. And then lastly, God's heart is for all the nations. You are sitting here, if you're a Christian, because someone went to the nations. If you've come to trust and follow Jesus, that's because someone brought the message to you that God is pursuing all nations, including you. And the good news is is that we're now commissioned to go do the same. What a high calling and a great privilege. According to Revelation, he's going to accomplish it. Would not God be pleased to use us to do it? We have the greatest news in the whole world. God can flip the worst evil for great good and great grace, and he does throw through Jesus Christ. And I would just call you to come to him. Come to him on his terms. Trust in him. Follow him. Walk with him. He is the God of the Bible. He's the point of the whole thing. He reverses Babel. And he can save anyone who trusts in him and then commission them for this massive quest to go get all the nations for his glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage and what an epic passage it is. God, we thank you for the ways that it gives explanation for why the world is the way it is. God, we thank you that it gives us a theme, a picture, a prototype, I guess, of what we see in the world when we see organized human evil. And we thank you ultimately that's a setup for your own saving purposes in the world. God, we thank you that you love every nation on earth 
and that you are sending your people to go. God, I pray that if there's anyone in here who's not yet decided to follow Jesus, to trust in him, to be a part of this story, God, I pray that now you would be moving in their hearts to at least want to know more about it. Pray that you would draw people to yourself to be part of this massive, epic story of how you're saving the world through your son. And God, I pray those of us that have received your son, help us to see our lives way differently. Help us to love the nations. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to leverage whatever our job is, whatever resources we have, in order to see the gospel go to as many people as possible in obedience to you and in great joy. God, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.